in the midst of the mass cow came up to us and said, look, we're, we're running out of red cell, whatever, running out of blood products. We're going to do a whole blood drive. I, I thought we were all going to go to jail. I'd never heard of a whole blood drive. I'd never had any training in whole blood. I didn't participate actually in it, but a third of the hospital donated whole blood, laid down, gave blood, got back up, went back to work. And then we were hanging blood warm, warm bags of whole blood on soldiers based upon dog bags. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. You are now listening to part two of our War Docs interview. If you haven't already, we hope you get a chance to listen to part one of this conversation, which is currently available on Wardox on all major podcast platforms. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel Dr. John Holcomb to Wardox. Dr. Holcomb received his medical degree from the University of Arkansas and trained in general surgery at the William Beaumont Army Medical Center in El Paso, Texas. He later completed a fellowship in surgical critical care at the University of Texas Medical School in Houston, Texas. He was the commander of the United States Army Institute of Surgical Research at Fort Sam Houston, Texas, and was the trauma consultant to the Army Surgeon General. After retiring from the Army, Dr. Holcomb served as director of the Center for Translational Injury Research at UT Medical School in Houston for 10 years. He currently is professional surgery division of acute care surgery at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. So you mentioned before 9-11, you brought research kind of looking at hemorrhage control from Beaumont into the ISR. Fast forward now, it's post 9-11. What new questions are being asked by your team and how do you prioritize and, and formulate those battlefield research questions so you know that you're tackling the most important? So I like to be mostly data-driven. And uh, so now I'm, you know, command of a research institute with a large number of research personnel. The I would say in the interwar period, it's easy to get distracted and go off in a, several different directions. At the beginning of the war, and even before we crossed the berm, I went over as the trauma consultant and did a kind of a review of the hospitals, the hospital and the medical laydown that was there. It was very clear to me that we were obviously going to cross the berm very quickly. And uh, so I was able to come back home and redirect some of the efforts in the ISR to focus on very combat-related issues. As an example, one of the researchers was working on hibernation. And so, you know, that sounds really good, but that sounds like, you know, 10, 20, 30-year project. And he goes, yep, that's right. He says, well, then we're not going to work on that because I got guys dying on the battlefield right now. You're going to work on stopping bleeding. He goes, well, I don't want to do that. I said, we can go find another job. The, so I, I think it's, you know, military labs need to focus differently than civilian research institutes, which I've subsequently worked in for the last over decade. So in the civilian world, you can kind of work on whatever you want as long as you get somebody to fund it, investigator sponsored. But if you're working in the military lab at the beginning of the war, you need to work on things that are important to the battlefield. And, and that's what we did. We were able to refocus folks, uh, and they all responded. None of them went and got other jobs. But it required several uh, conversations, if you will, to refocus people and get them working uh, as collaboratively in a team 
on the major causes of death and, and uh, morbidity and mortality on the battlefield, which are, were laid out by Bellamy and haven't changed really. You know, it's head injuries. Most of them are non-preventable deaths. Uh, hemorrhage, which is potentially preventable a large percentage of time. And then a little bit of tension pneumothorax and a little bit of sepsis. Th those are the problems. So that's what we focused our work on. What were some of the most important translational research projects that you felt that you were involved in at the ISR and what papers or concepts should all deploying surgeons and critical care physicians be aware of? Number one, it's the emphasis I said it several times is team, right? Teamwork and collaborative work. I think that the, the work we did on tourniquets along with Frank Butler and tactical combat casualty care, Frank, you know, is an ophthalmologist. I mean, how he ended up focused on combat casualty care, I don't, I don't know. But Frank is has a great way of looking at things. They started talking about tourniquets. The soldiers put tourniquets on in Somalia. So I'd seen them. I saw them work. And the TC3 thing started right before Somalia got going. And, and then we kind of worked together. Tourniquets just made sense. And we were able with a research infrastructure at the ISR to, to test different tourniquets and look at them. And then I had a budget, right? So we bought 20,000 tourniquets and took them to the battlefield and distributed those tourniquets all around the battlefield. Now, that one that we did didn't work great. It was better than the strap and buckle tourniquet, but it got us working in the tourniquet field with PhDs and with models of ischemia and reperfusion. So I think that work has uh, been great. The other work, obviously, is with uh, balance component therapy and whole blood. We wrote the damage control resuscitation editorial. I wrote that in between cases in Baghdad and then talked to folks about it, got a large group of people to kind of sign on to that concept. And then we put large amount of data next to it, retrospective from the battlefield and ultimately prospective and randomized from the civilian world funded by the DOD. And then I think the work on the trauma system and the trauma registry was critically important as well. And that's has generated a lot of papers talking about hypothermia, head injuries, tension pneumothorax. Again, we took that Bellamy slide that we all know so well of the causes of death and tried to put data and interventions next to it that would make a difference. And then because we had a trauma system and a trauma registry, we could implement these things and then do performance improvement to see if they worked or not. Not every good idea works, right? And so merging uh, epidemiology intervention, and then a process, a way that we could look at the results fairly quickly and see if it worked or not, I think is with a huge team of people that made a difference. How were you able to get that stuff from the lab into Army, Navy, Air Force policy and, and doctrine? Yeah, that's, that's sometimes a harder thing to do than coming up with great ideas. Yeah, I'm pretty stubborn and I can be very persistent. And, and General Peak asked me to be the consultant, which gave me a, a platform with, within which to speak from, and then also asked me to be the commander of the ISR. So I had a team of people as the commander of the ISR, budget, people to work, you know, MSC officers to help us with all of the admin details, uh, personnel office, a budget office, et cetera, and the deputy commander who owes six MSC officers who are extraordinary. And then be able to, because I was the trauma consultant, I could deploy myself just about any time and work with, with the med brigades that were in theater. And then the linkage to the special operations world was uh, really important. If you want to try a new weapon system, doesn't start at the 82nd, right? It starts at the Ranger Regiment or with Delta. And if it works there, then it spreads in the conventional force. And that's what we did in combination with Captain Butler. 
is we would come up with these quote good ideas, try to put some data next to it in one way or the other, either in the lab with animals or in people and normal volunteers like we do with tourniquets. And if it worked, then we deployed the person in special operations world. And then they tweaked it, made it better, and then rolled it into the conventional force. That's that's how we did everything. Just like a weapon system. So. Let's dive into the tourniquet a little bit. Certainly when I joined the army, the tourniquet was not the tourniquet that we see now. How was the tourniquet for lack of a better term, rediscovered? And then how did you go about developing it to one that was actually effective on the battlefield? And then one that then became a part of the inventory of every single soldier that was deployed on the battlefield? Yeah, again, a lot of people with a lot of work, you know, in 2003 in Missoula, there's a, a classic picture of a soldier with both legs blown off with the cravats and sticks. And with improvised tourniquets, I mean, it's in everybody's, it's all over the place. And so the Army's plan at going into Iraq was to use tourniquets because of TC3, but they were tourniquets from, made from cravats and sticks. And the problem with the desert, unless you're up in Missoula, there's no trees, right? There's no sticks. So it was a bad plan. And we did a uh, review of the first 80 deaths of the war. And if my memory's right, four or five, six of those uh, soldiers died from lack of tourniquets. Nothing. And there's pictures, you know, of the guys trying to do improvised tourniquets. And then we showed those to General Kiley, who was the Surgeon General at the time. And we had, before doing the presentation, actually, had, you know, we had the data together. We had some pictures. We had the AFIP autopsy results. And then we had done some work in the lab where we took normal human volunteers, right, and put different tourniquets on and, and then took blood pressures and Dopplers and that sort of thing and make see if the tourniquets would occlude the dorsalis pedis and posterior tib. The Army issue strap and buckle tourniquet will not do that. So the, the tourniquet that the Army issued for 80 years did not function as a tourniquet, wouldn't occlude the, you know, the, the pulse at the, at the ankle. And we showed them several versions that did. We did a couple different um, versions of those. And I kind of wrote a memo, signed it as a colonel commander, and, and uh, then took that to special operations where they deployed tourniquets on the battlefield. And in classic uh, fashion, the medics looked at them and made them better, called back home to their wives, and they sewed the cat tourniquet in the garage based upon feedback from a special operations medic on the battlefield. We then tested the cat tourniquet, and it was as good as anything out there. There are several of the tourniquets that worked pretty well and uh, went forward and got the army to purchase them and then deploy them. Yeah. So post-injury infection has traditionally been a primary driver of morbidity following battlefield trauma. And as we know, Southwest Asia had some weird bugs. What did the ISR do to address infectious disease associated with battlefield trauma? Yeah, I would say not much actually. And I know it's not a great answer, but as a trauma surgeon back here in the United States, so you have this incredible microbiology and I mean, all the stuff that's available and you go to the battlefield and early in the war, there was no microbiology available. There were no culture results available. And so you started people on antibiotics and for the U S soldiers, they left pretty quickly. Right. But the, but the Iraqis and the same thing in Afghanistan stayed in the combat support hospitals and the FSTs for sometimes weeks, if not months with no microbiology support early. That changed later, but early in the war, there was none. And I think those guys then developed all the multi-drug resistance, acinetobacter and other bugs that were out there, and, and then carried those, you know, then got cross-contaminated because the, the patients were this far apart. There was not good hand hygiene, hand washing. 
all the infection control stuff. Pretty quickly with the infectious disease consultants, Clint Murray was a young major at the time. He's now Brigadier General Murray, commander of AMSI. He was very active in this, and we worked together quite a bit. Microbiology lab culture results kind of were implemented and, and available now in combat support hospitals. Uh, they deployed infection control nurses to the battlefield to help uh, fix those uh, practices. And what we saw was just by standard things that you do back here in the U.S. and, and with microbiology support, then the acinetobacter didn't go away, but it became less of an issue. Blood products are divided into different components, plasma, platelets, cryoprecipitate, red blood cells. However, component therapy resuscitation was found to have significant limitations, particularly in regards to coagulopathy. Tell us about how you began to study resuscitation and how that impacted battlefield care. You know, it goes back to Somalia again. We, we used fresh whole blood in Somalia quite a bit. The Denver Perkins was a anesthesiologist from Walter Reed. He was an infantry officer in Vietnam. And he, in the midst of the mass cow, came up to us and said, look, we're, we're running out of red cell, whatever. We're running out of blood products. We're going to do a whole blood drive. I, I thought we were all going to go to jail. I'd never heard of a whole blood drive. I'd never had any training in whole blood. I didn't participate actually in it. But a third of the hospital donated whole blood, laid down, gave blood, got back up, went back to work. And then we were hanging blood warm, warm bags of whole blood on soldiers based upon dog tags, no testing. And we're pretty, it was unbelievable. It's like a religious experience to see the coagulopathy go away when they get fresh whole blood, you know, that's still warm from the donor. I came home and we started talking about this and writing about it. And everybody thought we were crazy. The blood bankers, this is, you know, they just rejected everything we talked about with whole blood because it was so different. Okay, move forward, you know, a decade, and now we're in the midst of uh, what all the stuff that's going on in Iraq, and and we've talked about whole blood. John Hess and I wrote a guideline for doing whole blood, but it was too far a stretch, and so component therapy was available, non-platelets, and and so we started looking at results. And there's a paper that that we wrote that came out of the out of the combat support hospital in Iraq that that looked at balanced resuscitation versus unbalanced with all the issues of a retrospective study in the, in the midst of a uh, combat support hospital. But it really kind of highlighted that there appeared to be a strong association by using closer to one-to-one ratio than a one-to-two or one-to-four, even one-to-nine. At that time, I, you guys don't know this, but we were told to give plasma after the 10th unit. of So plasma after the 10th unit of red cells is what I was taught when I was a surgery resident. And the platelets you only give when you see microvascular bleeding. In other words, when the guy's about to die, give platelets. That's what the teaching was. And yet the data would say if you started giving more balanced resuscitation, the patients did better. So we were able to implement this one-to-one approach. And then because of that, and then people said, well, you're just trying to recreate whole blood. Why don't we just give whole blood? You're like, ah, oh, what a good idea. And then, so implementing that whole blood was an easier step than going from what we were taught to whole blood right away. It's funny, one of our prior guests, and you know him well, Evan Renz, said the exact same thing. He said, John Holcomb called me up and said, try this whole blood. It's going to be a religious experience. And he said it really was. You could just you could watch it, you know, the coagulopathy go away. The anesthesiologist will tell you if you give whole blood, you can start giving an anesthetic, right, rather than just a paralytic when you resuscitate with whole blood. It's really interesting, actually. Tell us a little bit about how concepts of damage control surgery and damage control resuscitations have changed in the past 20 years and how it's been shaped by battlefield experience. 
Yeah, so damage control surgery really came about from a paper in, in 1991 that was a pretty important paper in the, in the civilian trauma world. Rotondo and those guys had a, had a pen wrote this paper, and it, there's a small number of patients, like 20 or 30 patients. If you go back, the original damage control comes back in, in the early 1900s. I mean, so it's not a new concept. But they really said, hey, you know, you need to restore normal physiology. You don't need to restore normal anatomy. And that caught on pretty quickly. You know, I did probably my first classic damage control surgery case in 1992 at Fort Bragg with a, a young paratrooper who landed too hard and drove his femur up into his pelvis. But I would say damage control surgery be, very quickly became the norm on how we'd take care of these really, really sick patients because you couldn't fix their physiology. You had to do a temporary closure, staple off bowel, ligate blood vessels, and get out of the operating room because they were cold and coagulopathic. That became so common that, that up to 30 40% of trauma laparotomies were handled in a damage control surgery way. That's where we were when we started in Iraq. As we understood how better to resuscitate patients, with less crystalloid, more balanced components, and then ultimately with whole blood, what we found is we could stay in the operating room longer. There was no edema. Temperature control became easier to take care of, and you could actually stay there longer, fix anatomy, and even close the fascia. So the, the damage control resuscitation concept, what, you had to have damage control surgery first, and then you have damage control resuscitation. And then damage control resuscitation, if you do it right, actually allows you to do less damage control surgery. So this damage control surgery now, rather than being 30, 40% of all trauma laparotomies is, is in many places down to less than 5%. Interestingly, that's what it was when it started in the 70s and 80s, when they were using whole blood and less crystalloid. Kind of an interesting little story. History isn't really something else when you dive into it. So one of the other major innovations that occurred during the early parts of the war and, and continued through the war to get better and better was hemostatic dressings. And you had mentioned that cloth bandages were used from the Civil War up until the time just past 9-11. So tell us how the hemostatic agents were developed and how they were improved upon as the war continued. Yeah, my personal impetus in this was the soldier who had the traumatic hip disarticulation from the RPG and died from his pelvis. I like it is in his iliac artery and then put mask pants on as a compression dressing and I uh, gave him whole blood and uh, yeah, he lived for a while in the ICU, but ultimately exsanguinated. He just had this big, huge wound. And, and you come home, you think about that and you go, well, we need something better than gauze, right? You need something better than gauze. There's gotta be something better than gauze. And John Hess, two years later, published a paper in, in archives of surgery with some fibrinogen and thrombin and they put it on a peg, and I called Colonel Hess the next day, and uh, we then got together with the American Red Cross and went down to Fort Bragg, and with the guys that I knew there, did a ballistic study in animals. I, I quick approved it, published in, in archives of surgery, and we compared the gauze dressing to this kind of handmade thrombin and fibrinogen-based dressing, and the fibrinogen thrombin, as you might expect, had a better outcome, decreased blood loss than the gauze dressing, combat dressing. That really launched our uh, foray into this. That was published probably in 97, 98 timeframe. One of those fibrinogen-based dressing was actually used on a U.S. casualty in Afghanistan at the beginning of the war. So, but along the way, we discovered that dressing was too fragile. It was too expensive. Fibrinogen thrombin are too expensive. And so a Kytosan dressing came about from a group up in Portland, Oregon. And in our lab work in the ISR and other places, it, it was better than gauze. 
cheaper, more durable. We actually ran over it with a Humvee, you know, there's a little demo and said you could still use it after that. And in the lab, it worked pretty well. Now on the battlefield, it didn't, the medics didn't like it, it was kind of stiff and you had to kind of play with it to get it to conform, but it was still better than gauze. And you kind of move forward, it's like these iterations. So once you have something that works, right, and people, then, then, then you get 20 companies out there, 20 in, investigators, 20 universities all trying to make something better because they're going to sell millions of them to the military. And that's what happened. You know, it started with one dressing and then there was the Kytosan and all of a sudden there's 20 of them. And, and you guys know there's a, a bunch of these dressings now. They are all better than gauze and some are better than others. So we're, I think it's... Uh, Honestly, I think it's one of the probably more important innovations that, that really sprang from the war and were funded by the DOD. And then, you know, they're, they're everywhere. They're every civilian hospital, every ambulance, everywhere on the battlefield and in the civilian world. So during this time period, the, the early mid-war, I was a general surgery resident. And I remember that we were using hemostatic powder. So the chitosan powder. What other innovations were you trying to come through? And then why is it that gauze was better than powder, better than maybe some other things you had researched? Yeah, you may have been using the quick clot powder. So the, the quick clot powder was was exothermic, actually. And did you ever hold it in your hand with put some water on it? Oh, yeah. We, I remember it would get really hot when you would put it on. You know, we would do it more in pig labs, but it would get really, really warm when you try to put on a, hemo, a bleeding. Yeah. So early in the war, you know, this exothermic reaction, it's Jermaine reminded me of John Wayne, you know, putting the Bowie knife in a candle and then sticking it in the wound, right? It'll seal, but it burns the patient. And there were casualties that were burned by quick clot early in the war. We kind of demonstrated that to the Surgeon General where we put some quick clot in a cup and then poured water in it and melted the bottom of the cup. And he goes, well, I don't think we should put that on our soldiers. What do you think, Colonel? I said, I agree with you. <laughs> so, yeah, so they, you know, we kind of put the kibosh on that after a while. But the, the quick clot dressings, you know, they're not exothermic are, are really good. So there are, there are several of them that are outstanding now. But the quick clot powder really, you know, was had problems with exothermic. So Right now, we're trying to prepare surgeons to deploy and do whatever's required of them downrange. And as you know, the current situation in trauma surgery is becoming less and less operative, more minimally invasive, really high-tech imaging. Those things are not available on the battlefield. How can we make sure that our folks who go to the next battlefield are prepared? I think this is a little bit of walk, run, sprint kind of thing. And are you going to be able to prepare somebody for the battlefield who's never been there? The answer is no. You know, can you can we improve upon the experience of general surgeons, trauma surgeons, by putting them at busy civilian trauma centers or BAMSI, right, which is a busy place? Yeah, that's the run part, right? So you walk when you learn, you know, you, you walk, the walk part is as general surgery residency. The run part is I'm a firm believer in these MILSIV partnerships. We have active duty Air Force teams assigned at Alabama, where I do my clinical work now. There's four of the teams there. They rotate through deployments, and then they come back and recover, and they're fully part of the team taking trauma call. The sprint is when you go to the battlefield and have to do something on the battlefield in a very austere setting without all the stuff around. You can't sprint if you don't know how to run. So in my opinion, running is taking care of patients at a high quality, high volume, civilian level one trauma center. And then you go to the battlefield and you sprint. You can't go from 
not take, I think it's very difficult. I've watched people do try to do this, you know, in my time rotating around. When I went to Iraq as the trauma consultant, I operated at every level and in every hospital. And that's how you learn what goes on. You can talk to the guy. You don't just dip in for an hour and say, oh, you spend three or four or five days at each place and then operate with them and listen. And the, the folks who came from non-busy places where they do hernias and gallbladders uh, struggled, uh, especially if they've been out for a while. And the folks that were working at busy trauma centers struggled less. So with your vast experience being in the military and training people at Ben Taub and then working with the ISR and going to all these different forward surgical teams, what advice would you give to the surgeons of the current generation as they think about a next big war or still are participating in the present war that's still ongoing? Yeah, I think, number one, get to one of these MILSIV partnership places. Be one of the permanently assigned folks. Operate as much as you can, you know, scrub on as many cases as you can. If a vascular patient comes in, don't hand it off to the vascular surgeon and walk away. Stay there and hold hooks or, you know, participate in the care of the patient. Same thing with thoracic. So thoracic and vascular is are the keys. You know, the general surgery stuff in the abdomen and the extremity stuff is actually, I, I won't say it's easy, but it is more within the bailiwick, right, of the general surgeons that are being trained today. It's the thoracic part, the neck, and the and the vascular cases that are, are going to be the things they aren't familiar with. So during your post-medical career, you worked at UT Houston and in many different roles. How did your military medicine experience influence and impact your post-retirement career? Yeah, so I was offered a, the division director job at UT Houston, largely because of the experiences I had in the military, right? With leading, you know, large groups of folks, understanding administration, and then doing research. The, the civilian folks at the division level want people who can operate, who understand administration, and who understand research. And so, I mean, my military career set me up for that. Did that for a decade, and then I've become much more interested over the last couple of years in innovation, entrepreneurship. I started a small company. I'm on the board of four companies, and I find these small companies much more like Special Forces A-teams. You know, they're very focused, and if you're not very good, you get kicked out pretty quickly, and they're very focused on a mission. They work 24-7 with a goal, and I, I like that. I think that's a lot of fun, and so I try to merge my regulatory experience and my medical experience, I'm growing a little bit in the business, becoming more familiar with the business world, with the medical world, and put all that together. It's a lot of fun. And then I, one week a month, I go down to Alabama and operate and teach and do research. Tell us about some of the innovations you're working on now. Let's see. We have, uh, well, one of them, and then I do some consulting. I, we, the first study I did back at the ISR when I went there after El Paso was putting foam, fibrinogen-based foam into a rat. We cut its liver and stopped bleeding. And now uh, Arsenal Medical has this foam, you know, intravenal foam that they're getting ready to put in people. And so it's been kind of fun to see that go from a rat study to an FDA cleared DOD funded study in trauma patients. Working with um, the company I started, it's a health IT company, takes all the data that's hidden in the computers and the EHR and puts it up where people can see it and actually use it. That's based upon the frustrations I had you know, with EHR. And then there's a fluid warmer company and a number of different things. So you mentioned the foam and one of the, obviously the tourniquet controls extremity hemorrhage, but one of the things that is still ongoing that was never really solved well in the war, minus you know the reboa, so resuscitated balloon occlusion of the aorta, is this idea of non-compressible torso hemorrhage. And so I'm assuming that the foam that you're talking about is targeted towards the non-compressible torso hemorrhage. 
Why is it that non-compressible torso hemorrhage is such a hard problem to solve? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the Reboa, I think, is an interesting technology. I was a CMO of one of the Reboa companies for a couple of years, several years ago, and it, it, is the, it is the hard problem. It is the cause of the majority of, of the deaths on the battlefield is trunk in the abdomen. It happens very quickly. You know, within 15 to 30 minutes of injury, those guys are dying. And so the intervention has to occur very quickly. Most of them won't get to an OR table within that time frame. And it's the same thing in the civilian world, by the way, the same time frame. The physiology in the military and civilian world is exactly the same. And so we need a product or a device that you can put either in the aorta or in the peritoneal cavity that fills it up and stops bleeding. I don't think it, I don't really care what it is, but we just need to get that out there and, and get in the hands of docs in the ED. And then if it works, put it pre-hospital in the hands of the medics. But there's a lot of work in those two sentences, by the way. So looking back, is there anything that you would say that you miss about military medicine? Yeah, I, everybody's going to say, I, I miss the team. I miss the people. I miss the mission. Uh, the mission in the civilian world is not the same as the mission in the military world. I, I was, you know, not lucky, but I, I fell into the special operations world, which I loved. And, and then, you know, the war was starting and General Peake asked me to do some things with the ISR and was able to deploy a lot and uh, take care of soldiers. I, I miss that. So sometimes we ask surgeons, especially if they remember a memorable save and, and we always you know talk about it's a team effort, obviously, but are there any cases that you think back and say, wow, the team did such an amazing job. I can't believe that soldier or person lived. Yeah. Yes, of course. You know, like I said earlier though, that you're supposed to save those guys, right? That's what we're supposed to do. And and so, I, and I think all surgeons will tell you this, it's the guys who, who we don't say that we remember most clearly. There are a lot of saves. You know, 94% of trauma patients who come into a trauma center live, right? And uh, if you're not in the 94, 95, 96 range, you're not a good trauma center. So it's the guys who, who come in alive, talking or, you know, alive who then die that, that we all remember. And, and those are the ones who drive our efforts to improve outcomes. So one thing we also ask our guests is looking down the road, let's say 7,500 years from now, if someone listens to this podcast, someone from your family, future family, what would you want to tell them? Or what would you say is your legacy in military medicine and medicine in general? I think that what we as a group were able to do is take our experiences on the battlefield, think about those, work with teams of people, Frank Butler, Eastridge, Jenkins, Reed, and then do the experiments, whether it be animal or people, and not always, you know, highest quality, level one, JAMA kind of papers, but put that data together and, and then think through how are we going to make it better and then apply interventions on the battlefield that in hindsight may not have been right all the time, but trying to move that, move things forward and then create a system, as I said earlier, where we could see the results. You know, I, you can't stand still and see guys bleeding to death over and over and over again, just like they described in World War II and in Vietnam, Somalia, and not try to do something better. Well, people go, why do wars always make things better in the trauma world? And I mean, it's true, right? It's true. Every war we've been in, things are better in the civilian world afterwards. And if the war is long enough, you get better in during the war. 
And I think back to experiences in Somalia and the combat support hospitals in Iraq, there's, you're not distracted. Everybody's focused on, on the patient and you work 24 seven, right? There's no, you don't go home. There's no family. You don't have bills. You don't have to mow the yard, all that kind of stuff. Those are all good things. But when you're deployed, you're, everybody's hundred percent focused on the casualty. And you know, the, the radiologist will bring you a report. The pharmacist brings you the drugs. The lab guy brings you, everything's right. Everybody's focused on that patient. There's nothing like it in the civilian world. And you're all focused on getting better. You meet and talk and say, what, what are we going to do? How are we going to do things better next time? And then because it's, there's so many patients when it's busy, you have to have the number of patients coming through to make things better. We had several times the Ibn Sina Combat Support Hospital was seeing four or 5,000 patients a year, 90% penetrating, all of them going to the OR. You know, you have to get better when you're doing that. Well, we've been speaking with retired Army Colonel, Dr. John Holcomb. John, thanks for sharing your experiences and insights with us on War Docs, and, and thank you for your service to the nation. I appreciate it. Thank you all for your time. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team War Docs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.